I should put all these notes into a book and we'll call it that. Journeying through Genesis. <laughs> but Genesis 18 at 16 is where we're at. We'll finish this chapter up this morning. Then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, while Abraham was standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? So the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the fifty righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. He spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose forty are are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of forty. And then he said, O my Lord, or may the Lord not be angry, and I shall speak. Suppose thirty are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find thirty. And And he said, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of twenty. And then he said, O may the Lord not be angry, and shall I speak only this once. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on the account of ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed and Abraham turned to returned to his place. One of the most incredible um, uh, records of a phone conversation that I think I came across lately happened in 2001. It's a true story. You'll get a kick out of this one. It happened um, in to deal with uh, in Israel with the uh, Arab and Israeli conflict. And of course, it's been going on for longer than you and I have been around. But it was when one of um, the security service chief of Gaza was in a motorcade traveling and his motorcade became under a fire by the Israeli troops. And so obviously he realized it was a serious situation. He feared for his life, but he was a man of power. So he picked up his car phone and he called the late Yasser Arafat. Um, He told him what was going on. Yasser Arafat in turn called the U.S. ambassador for the area who called the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, which was Colin Powell. Colin Powell picked up his phone and called uh, Ariel Sharon, who was the Prime Minister of Israel at the time, and he ordered the shooting to be stopped. (laughs) And I thought, that's incredible, Lord, that, you know, just with technology, in a matter of seconds, it could go beep, 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 and it stops. Now, that's not the only case. Here's another one. There's one time a young man, he was out kayaking in southern England off the Isle of Wight, his name was Mark Ashton Smith. He was 33-year-old. He was a lecturer at Cambridge University. And he capsized in the treacherous waters off England. Clinging to his raft, he knew he was in trouble. 
If he didn't get help, he would drown and die. So he had his cell phone, believe it or not. And uh, Ashton Smith's first inclination was to call his father. Okay? And it didn't matter to the desperate son that his dad, Alan Penn Smith, was actually working, training British, British trips in Dubai, 3,500 miles away. Without delay, the father picked up his phone, got a hold of the Coast Guard. The, they got a hold of the station nearest to the sun, which was actually less than a mile away. And within 12 minutes, they were plucking the boy out of the water with a helicopter. <laughs> you know, it's um, if a security chief can be saved and if a son can be saved, um, how much more when you and I pray um, that we, we don't see God work? And this morning, we want to really give some thought to this whole area of prayer as we are in the passage we're in this morning. The good thing for you and I is when we pray, we don't have to go through anybody, you know. And don't let anybody ever tell you you do. You don't. If you are in Christ, that is your full access to God. You can go to the Father, you can go with boldness, and you can pray away, and God will hear you, and God will answer your prayer. And as Abraham is faced with this reality now, what we're seeing here of the destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah because the cities have become so wicked and really as five cities in that area. And so as Abraham is faced with this reality of the wickedness of these cities and now he's learning about God's impending judgment that God is going to judge these cities. Um, even though what we just read is a face-to-face account between Abraham and the Lord, it's what you and I have today in the New Testament as believers of prayer. And that's what we call it. Um, even though we may not be face to face with the Lord, um, in a way we are face to face with Him, aren't we, spiritually? And so I don't know about you, but when I pray, I have no problem realizing the Lord hears me and uh, it's as if He could be right there and we're just praying away. And so this is one of the things that we see. Um, prayer is important, isn't it? And, uh, and really, this is what I want you to just be focused on this morning, that the importance of prayer and uh, as it relates to your own life. Um, John Bunyan was a great old saint. And John Bunyan said, you can, do, you can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And that is so true. It really is. And I know um, you and I agree with that. And I just say, Lord, help us to experience you more. Another man named Edward Payson, he was a saint during the Civil War, said, Prayer is the first thing, the second thing, the third thing necessary to minister. Pray, therefore, my dear brother. Pray, pray, pray. And I love these old saints. God uses them to remind us what's important. And, and so do we need to pray more? I don't think any of us in this room would say, No, I got it down. I'm praying just enough. And, of course, the answer is yes. We all need to pray more. And I include myself in that. And so... We need to do that. So maybe this morning, this passage is going to be that thing that maybe even makes us turn a corner and we really start experiencing a level of prayer in our life that we've never before. Now, as we think of this, I want to just remind you of something that I think will also help to motivate you in the air of prayer. And it's really the example we have in the early church. When we think of the early church, we're talking about the book of Acts. And really, it was the first church, wasn't it? There wasn't a church in a sense until Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, buried, and risen and ascended. And once he ascended then, 
you could say the, the church was born there on that day of Pentecost. And so the early church was a praying church. I looked in my concordance doing a fast, quick look, and I found at least 28 times either the word praying or prayer or prayed um, in the book of Acts alone about the early church. And I didn't even go to the rest of the New Testament, which other than the, the Gospels is the early church. And we'd be into the hundreds if we went to look through that, the whole New Testament of the references to praying. And so this is what the early church did. Acts 2.42 really is a great statement about that early church. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so following Peter's message at Pentecost, what a day it was. 3,000 people came to the Lord, um, were added to the church. We're told that the believers then of that early church did these four things. They gave themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and then to prayer. And this was how the early church grew, how it grew in numbers, how it grew spiritually, uh, giving themselves to these four things. And it should challenge us to, to be like those who have gone before us. As I said, I'm so thankful for those that are examples to us, that kind of say, I'm not there, but I want to be there. And, and this is what we see here today as we think of this early church and what they were about. Um, always devoting themselves to these four things. It's interesting when you look up, it says they were continually devoting themselves. If you were to go to like a Greek dictionary like by Thayer, it means to adhere, to be steadfastly attentive to, to, be, to give unremitting care to a thing, to continue all the time in a place, to preserve, persevere and not faint, to show oneself courageous for. It's the same thing a kid does when he starts playing a video game. <laughs> you know, they just like, and they're focused. And that's what the church was. They were focused on, on these four things. And so the secret of the early church, watch this, how it spread, how it matured spiritually and spiritual truth, how it made it through the trials. Remember, this church would become a persecuted church. Um, how it saw God's power work as it did. How it was, what? It was constant Bible study. Constant, solid Bible teaching. It was fellowship. It was the breaking of bread. And it was prayer. And so knowing the Lord wants us to pray and seeing it then as a part of the early church, now we go to this passage and we say, okay, Lord, help me to see this big picture. And here I am now in the year 2007 and help me to understand um, this whole area of prayer as it relates to me. Now, Abraham was in the midst, if you were with us last week, and if not, I encourage you to grab the tape because you're not going to pick up on everything I'm going to say. But he's in the midst of this incredible vision, remember, by three visitors. He's sitting at the entrance of his tent. We talked about how it seemed like he was waiting for something. And so three visitors, the Lord himself and two angels came. And of course, what it is, it's, it's, it was Jesus Christ, an Old Testament appearance, which, again, is not an uncommon thing. It happened in the Old Testament. And it would seem that these visitors came to Abraham, as we saw for really last week, we saw that Abraham and Sarah would know now in a year you'll have a son and you were to name him Isaac. But then the second reason now comes out in these passages that Abraham would then learn of the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in that valley. They were cities that were there to this day because remember Abraham, when Lot and, and the kings came down from the north and had taken Lot and his family and others, 
Basically, that could have been at the end of those cities. But Abraham, in turn, went and rescued Lot and others. Lot sadly went back to this area. And so these were the cities that Abraham had a part in rescuing, if you will. The place there where he now had family. and But it was a valley. And again, it's down in the south, the very south side, the east side of the Dead Sea, where the wickedness had now come up before God to the extent that he would step in and put an end to it. And we'll see that next week as we get into 19. And so again, verse 16, look what it says. Then the men rose up from there, where? From Mamre, the Oaks of Mamre and Hebron, Abraham, the Lord, the two angels. They rise up from there and they look towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. In him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And so it seems the three were making, they they were leaving and they're heading now towards Sodom. That would be in a southeastern direction. Abraham was walking with them, probably being polite, saying goodbyes. And uh, the Lord then posed this question to the two angels should I tell Abraham what is about to happen? And the thinking was, if he's going to be the nation that I'm calling him to be, the leader that I'm calling to be, then really he needs to know this about me. And again, I think it's important. And what Abraham needed to know, and listen, I think every one of us as believers need to understand this, is first of all, that God will judge unrighteousness and that he is a, a, a just in doing so. Okay, And then those that seek him are to walk in his ways. They're to walk with holy fear. And next week we're going to get into this whole area of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and we'll look at the area of God's judgment, his justice. We'll actually look at the area of homosexuality next week in this area. But that's next week. But notice the Lord wants Abraham to then see what he's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah because why? They were failing to walk in his ways. And, and this is a powerful lesson for Abraham. It's a powerful lesson for you and I this morning. Even though it's so long ago when this happened, we could look at it as if it was yesterday and we could say, you're right, Lord. We need to look at this account and realize what happened to these cities is because they weren't walking the way that you told them to walk, the way you wanted them to walk. And again, it's a powerful thing for you and I to realize that it says we better be walking how Lord God wants us to walk. And so... If he was going to lead this nation, um, he would need to be one himself who kept walking the way of righteousness and justice and then see that the people that he oversaw did too. And so then God could bring, what does it say there, the blessings that he wanted. And you know, things haven't changed today. The Lord is looking for all believers to walk in his ways as he would have us walk. And that's why it's important to look at this and realize that. So having a fear of the Lord is really a good thing. Sometimes we don't understand what it means to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord, you guys, is really simple. It's that which checks us and makes us think of what we are doing before we do something we shouldn't do it. In other words, it's that which governs our behavior, our actions, our thinking. And the fear of the Lord should govern everything about us. The fear of the Lord should govern how I think, what I think about, where I let my mind go, where I let my heart go. What I watch on the TV, what I watch in a movie, what I do with my kids, don't do with my kids. See, all that should be relating to the fact what? What is God's will? What does God want? And really, what is best for me, right? 
Sometimes we think that obeying God, it's like, you know, it's this horrible thing we have to do. Well, last time I checked, every time I do things my way, I pretty well screw it up. And everything's I, every time I do it God's way, there's usually peace and blessing. So you could choose whatever way you want to go. But that's really the truth. It reminds me when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I think it was my sophomore year, there was an English teacher I had. and Oh, I gave it to her. Mark, if I was your student, you would have taken me outside and beat me up and it would have been deserved. But I gave it to this teacher and I didn't realize at the time. But I, now I realize what happened is this teacher, she was a lady and she had gone to another teacher who was a man and she probably had told him about me. And so I don't know if they decided or he just took it upon himself to deal with it, but he dealt with it. So one day I was in the hallway for some reason in between periods or during the period, so nobody was there. And next thing I know, here comes this other teacher. I didn't know anything was going on. And before I knew it, I was up against a locker with his hand around my throat. Now, some of you are thinking, could they do that? And I go, may they do it more, okay? Um, I don't have a problem with that. If you saw me, I deserve more than that. But what happened from this point on is Mr. Ikea governed my life. The fear of Mr. Ikea had direct impact on how then I acted in language arts class with this teacher from here on out. Trust me. Because I remember that day, and I won't tell you everything he said to me, but he said there would be more if you don't behave. And it wasn't just what he had done. And in those days... You know, those are the type of things you did. And so, you know, maybe we should, anyway, I'll just leave it alone. But that's what the fear of the Lord is. And notice verse 19, not only was Abraham's respect of the Lord important, but notice verse 19 is such a key verse on leading, that he may command his children and his household. And again, this is on our topic this morning. But you guys, especially you men, God calls you to leadership. You know? And that doesn't mean you're to be an ungodly leader, a, a leader that just flies off the handle and you know does things that are unjust. But you are to lead. And I think it's an important thing. And I, it's not just limited to guys. In my house, where my mom raised us boys, she was the leader. You know, what if she took the position, well, I'm not the husband, I'm not the head of the home, so you boys just do what you want. You know, my mom was funny because... In those days, you could spank and not get in trouble. And so she really had a nice leather belt. And I, you heard me say this. I look back and I just think it was crowd control. You know, you can imagine four boys. And I think of the teenage years. I think every so often my mom just put it in her date book. You know, the 30th of April, smack all the boys and simmer them all down again. So, you know, it was just kind of like she just knew. Every so often I got to run through this house with this belt and whomp them all to let them know I'm in charge and you'll do what I said. But anyway, um, my mom, you know, she would laugh if she heard me say that. And... uh and she'd probably say, yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> but you guys lead. And, and again, ladies, you have to lead at times too. Now, listen, be careful, ladies, that in your leading, you don't disrespect the role your husband has. But by all means, if there's a wife that stays home with the kids and the husband's at work, there better be some type of leading going on in the home, even while the husband's away. And so it's an interesting verse that challenges us here about this whole era of leading. Well, it goes on, verse 20, And the Lord said, watch this, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see 
If they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. And so the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah had become so great that God now would step in and notice he says their sin is exceedingly grave. Now you get the impression this is pretty bad because it just didn't say they sinned or they were sinning. It says it was exceedingly grave. And again, we're reminded of what we've already seen in Genesis in the book with Noah. That's why God stepped in with the flood is because sin had reached such a crescendo. And of course, when we were back in that part of Genesis, even to the point it was, could have had a major impact on the direction of the world that God stepped in and said enough. It makes me wonder, how bad does it have to get before God steps in? When we think of our world today, it is a pretty wicked world. And it's just getting worse. I mean, I, I won't even go there because that's not the point of our study this morning. But that's what happened. And the word is interesting. The word grave or grievous is, uh, grievous is how some Bibles say it. It's an interesting word. It can mean to be heavy, weighty, hard, insensible, dull, and, re- and unresponsive. And I thought, that is really interesting, Lord. Because what we say is, oh, they were, they, they were sinning a lot. No, do you understand? It was having an impact. And this is exactly what sin does. Sin will come upon a person. And this is what was happening to these cities. And it, make, it was making their life heavy and weighty and hard. And it was making them dull and unresponsive to the Lord. And that is exactly what sin does every single time. And, and just think about that. You know, when you've sinned, it's this heavy thing. It's this hard thing. And then usually it's a thing that leads to an unresponsiveness to the Lord. It's a horrible place to be. Another interesting thing is when it says here, the outcry, verse 20, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great. Some see that it just means the same thing. The sin had become exceedingly great. But there is an idea, and some feel that it was that there was an outcry actually coming before the Lord. And of course, then you say, well, who was outcrying? Who was crying about the sin of Sodom? Well, it had to be the angels. And so very likely the angels were also crying out to the Lord about what was going on down in Sodom. And when we get there next week, you read ahead so you're ready. It is perverted. It's beyond perverted. And what even uh, the two daughters that get saved due to their dad Lot is one of the most vile things you'll ever read. You know? See, scriptures don't hide anything, man. You know, scriptures don't sugarcoat anything. They'll just put it right there for you to see it. And so it's interesting that this crying out and, and, and sin does cry out to a holy God, making it something that he should deal with. And really, do you want it any other way? You know, it's like when my kids were younger and I saw my kids doing things that I know wasn't good for them. It cried out to me. It doesn't mean I always dealt with it right at the time, but it would be then that I would start plotting a direction, plotting a strategy, doing this, doing that, to try to shape their lives to help them. And that's what sin does to God. It cries out to Him, and and it gets His attention, and He'll deal with it. I like what John Davis says about this whole going down. Um, He says verse 21 implies not that God was uninformed about what was going on in the city, but that He would handle the situation justly. He already knew the city was wicked, but he wanted to demonstrate that his decision to destroy it was fully justified and not arbitrary. So again, God knew what was going down. But really, by doing what he did, then we realized that he, it wasn't this rash thing that he was doing. Well, verse 22, the men then turned away from there. These two angels is what it means. Look at 19.1. You'll see their angels. 
They went towards Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? And so up to this point, they had been together all four. Again, if you could just picture the Dead Sea in your mind, about halfway down the Dead Sea to the west is where Hebron would have been and the, 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 the place where they're at. And, of course, Sodom is down in the southeast of the lake, of the Sea of Galilee. And so this is where they were, and, and now they head that way. It's interesting. I don't understand what it means when it says, that next week you'll see that Abram looked and saw the smoke of Sodom and Gomorrah. I've been in this area, and unless you hike to the edge of what they call the mountains that really overlook the uh, Masada and overlook the Dead Sea, you won't be able to see Sodom. Uh, Hebron... Uh, is 3,300 feet to this day. You can actually go on your computer to Hebron.com and it'll bring up the city of Hebron, Israel. You know, it's it's amazing. Sometimes we just don't think, you know, but it's there. It's alive and well. They have stuff you could visit and everything else. And then the Dead Sea, of course, is below sea level. And so there's this departing and this looking down towards that area. And maybe they're literally looking or it's just figurative. But, but that's what they do. And so as Abraham then is left with the Lord, this is where now we enter into this area of prayer. And I want to show you some things. I'm going to give you six things this morning. Six. Okay. The first thing is that prayer is to be alone. Okay. Exactly where they had walked to. We know they went east of Hebron and towards the south somewhere. We don't know where it is. But what we do know is that now they were in a lonely place. It was a deserted place. If you go east of Hebron today, you'll end up in the middle of nowhere. And it was here that the Lord and Abraham then entered into this incredible exchange. And and not that all prayer is alone, okay? It isn't. It shouldn't be. Uh, we should have prayer partners. We, we pray together in church and at other times. So all prayer isn't alone. I don't want you to think that's what I'm saying this morning. But it would seem, and I think this, that most of our prayer should be alone. I think most of our prayer should be when you and I are alone with the Lord. And, and I like it that way, you know? Maybe when you're young in the Lord, you might find... The opposite is true. But then as you start to get older and as you are maturing in the Lord, you should realize how precious those alone times are and you seek out those alone times. And again, I love those times and I'm so thankful for them. You know, I like to pray alone. Um, You know what? I wouldn't want you to hear some of my prayers. You probably would quit coming to church. It'd probably hang you up. You'd realize he is man. I knew he was a man, but now I really know he's a man. And you know what? I don't want to hear some of your prayers. Okay? I really don't in that sense. And, and that's the beauty about what Jesus said in Matthew 6. When you pray, go into the inner room or the closet. And when you have shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is in secret will repay you. The context of Matthew there is the Pharisees were praying in public to be seen so they could be seen as spiritual. And Jesus says, listen, when you pray, get in that alone place. Get in that place where you can just be by yourself and where there's no distractions, where you can be honest, where you can really get real with God and God can get real with you. See? And so this is what we see. And again, I like it. I think it's a great thing. The next thing we see is prayer is a drawing near to God. When the angel had the angels had left and Abraham and the Lord were alone in this lonely place, look at verse 23. It says, Abraham came near and said. It's interesting there. You may think, oh, that just means he, he moved near to God. Now they're physically close to each other. That's not what it means. The Hebrew word is the word negas, and it means more than to draw near physically. It's often used in the Old Testament 
of the mind and heart reaching out toward God in worship and confession. In other words, Abraham drew near to the heart of God. He wanted to know, God, what are you thinking? I want to know about this. And isn't that what our prayer is to be? You know? And it's not so much that prayer needs to be both where we kind of go to God for understanding, but really then we kind of say, you know, maybe what I is important to me isn't as important what's important to you, God. I need to hear from you. And so this is a part of what was going on. And this is what Abraham now does as he asks the Lord these questions. And we need to see that praying isn't so much about, you know, um, uh, punching our religious clock, thinking, oh, we've done our duty. Now God isn't going to be upset with me. It's sad that we all do that at times. We, we measure our spirituality by how much we pray. And, and that's sad. But it's, it's drawing close to the Lord that our lives might be impacted by doing so. That we, we draw near to worship the one who has saved us. The one who is worthy of worship. Amen? I mean, He is alone worthy. He, he rescued us. He saved us. And we come and as we draw near, we, are to, we confess our sins. And it's a safe place to do it. You know, we think of our attitudes and maybe we weren't thinking of attitude. And all of a sudden we are. Well, that's the Spirit speaking to your heart. And we look at our actions and whatever on and on. Hebrews 10 says, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And see, that is what's so wonderful, you guys, about being in Christ. We have an open invitation to draw near and with boldness to the throne of God. It's incredible. And while it might be hard if you're young in the Lord or when you were young, and and intimacy for a lot of people is hard. It's not an easy, easy thing. But it is a discipline. And it is a habit that we need to cultivate, that we need to develop, and we need then to learn to really enjoy those intimate moments with the Lord. Let me tell you guys, it is wonderful. The older I get, those are the times I I desire more than anything. You know, I come into the office and all the stuff with the church and just junk we got to deal with. And junk's a positive word in my vocabulary, okay? So don't think you are junk. You're not junk. But what I really love, sometimes I just want to get alone with the Lord. You know, that's the place that I really enjoy. And so this is one of the things that we see Abraham did. He drew near. Another thing is notice prayer brings understanding. With Abraham, we see this in two ways. First, even before Abraham asked what the Lord asked these questions that we just read today, as as the Lord and these two angels came there, they revealed to him the purpose. One of the purposes was, hey, You're going to have a son by this time next year. And that's interesting because it says to you and I that when we pray, sometimes the thing that we're looking for understanding of, not even looking for it, maybe at the time, it will come to us. God will speak to us. And that's an important thing in prayer, isn't it? It's not just you and I telling God what we want or trying to direct God to get answers to what we want. But it's also that time where, unbeknownst to us, maybe we're in the Psalms reading something, and all of a sudden we just sense the Lord speaking to our heart about something. Maybe He's given us understanding to something we prayed about a week, two weeks ago, a month ago. And so that understanding comes. But then second, as he wonders if God will deal with things in a just way, destroying the righteous with the wicked, Abraham gains some understanding that God will. God will deal with it justly. See, he's told that. And so we, under, we see then that in prayer, we get wisdom, we get understanding. And I don't think any of us would disagree that praying brings insight. 
And even if the, it isn't the answer we're looking for, then it should change us to either accept what the answer is, or if God is saying, you need to wait and keep trusting me, then we need to do that. And so, who doesn't have questions? Who doesn't want wisdom or direction or want to hear from the Lord on something? And that's what prayer is about. What does Proverbs 3 tell us? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And really, that verse is just telling us this, you guys. If you and I trust in God, He will direct our lives. That's really what that verse says. Trust in me. Put your trust in me. Don't lean on your own understanding, and I will direct your life. Listen to what Griffith Thomas, this is an old preacher that lived years ago, said. He said, with a perfect trust, speaking of Abraham, in the absolute justice of God, he pours out his heart and tells God his difficulties. This is a true spirit of the believer who is face to face with the great mysteries of life. He takes them all to God in prayer, and in the presence of divine righteousness, he finds that rest of heart which enables him to wait patiently on God. And so this is another thing. A fourth thing. Prayer is spiritual warfare. We pray because our enemy, Satan, is not made with flesh and blood. And because he's not made with flesh and blood, he doesn't fight with flesh and blood. And so it is a spiritual battle, a battle that involves more than the physical, you guys, more than the material universe. And, and that's what we see. And praying itself is a battle. You understand? Right? If I was to ask every one of us that finds it hard to pray at times to raise your hand, I think everybody would raise their hand, including me. It's a battle, isn't it? You know, you start with the best intentions. Tomorrow when I get up, I'm going to pray more than I did today. And guess what? We don't do it, see? Because it's a battle. There's warfare going on. And so it's a battle to pray, and we need to pray because of the battle we find ourselves in. And so prayer, if you will, now watch this. This is so important. It can push back, I believe, the enemy and hold him in his place and then allow the work of God to be done in and through our lives. And I think we see this in Abraham. The Bible tells us that when Satan rebelled, Lucifer rebelled in heaven, that a third of the angels sought his way and decided to rebel as well and go with him. We go to the book of Revelation and we're told that the angels are worshiping God there, and they describe they're described as a mirrored, a mirrored upon mirrored. And the idea there in the original language is there's so many they can't be counted. And so if that is the case, if two thirds are in heaven and they are just so numerous they can't be counted, and there's a third that rebelled, well, if I see things correctly, there then are probably are millions of demonic or demons in this world. Now again, I don't mean to, I don't want to. Sound, start sounding weird or like one of these southern preachers that just kind of gets corny about all this stuff, you know. Um, but I think it's important you and I realize that we're in a spiritual battle. And maybe we are not seeing some of the victories in our own lives, in our families' lives, and in our workplaces or wherever you want in, the, in our church. It's because we are not, we're underestimating the battle that we are in. And this is where prayer comes in. You know, you know the story in the Gospels when the disciples couldn't cast out that. And Jesus said it's because they lacked prayer and, and faith, see. It takes much prayer, he said. And I think you and I need to understand what other people before us have understood, that there is power in prayer. And I would even say there's power in much prayer. And see, we don't like that. 
well, you sin, then I've got to, sometimes I've got to pray a lot about something to get it, something to happen. The answer is probably yes, because there's this battle going on. And we need to pray that God would, you know, come against that. And again, God comes against it. You and I don't come against it. I think we are a fool if we think we can go face to face with Satan and get him to do anything we want. Quite frankly, he would just probably laugh at us and think, you know, who do you think you are? But we come to Christ, and Christ then can rebuke Satan. Like the, I think it's the book of Jude talks about that. And so it's important you guys under, understand this, that there's a warfare here. Think of what Paul said, Ephesians 6. He says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual force of wickedness in the heavenly places. There it is right there. See, we don't understand, but what is it? There's rulers, there's powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness. Where? In the heavenlies. And there is a battle taking place there. Paul goes on in this passage here. This is where he then goes on. He says, okay, let me tell you about the armor of God. Put this on. And then he says, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And so Paul understood very clearly where the battle was, what the battle was, that there was a, a war going on, and the only way to battle this war is in prayer. And I just want to encourage you guys that if there is something in your life personally, if there is something in, a, in your family's life, your, your marriage life, in, in the work situation, whatever, even if you don't see it now, would you at least agree with me to the point that you could say, well, maybe I am not finding victory here because I really haven't prayed. It's one thing to come to the point and say, you know, I prayed three times like Paul for this thing to be removed and it didn't get removed. God's grace is sufficient. But I don't think we should ever say that until we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have prayed and prayed and bathed this thing in prayer. And then if that thing has not been removed, then fine. God's grace is sufficient. But I think we need to challenge ourselves. Is there a battle here that I'm not entering into and that is why I'm not seeing this thing taking place in my life or in this situation? And that's why you and I need to enter in those seasons of intercession, times of prayer, when we are very serious about what's going on. And we are going to pray and keep praying and pray this thing through and ask God to bring forth a victory. Another place you could look at later if you want to look at this more is go to the book of Daniel. Not only look at the prayers of Daniel, they're incredible prayers, but remember there was a delay in the answer to a prayer because of what? Spiritual warfare. Michael, the archangel, got hung up. Not hung up. He was battling. And he let Daniel know this is why there was a delay. So it's very clear, you guys, what we're talking about here is true. And so understand that prayer is spiritual warfare. Notice when Abraham did ask, will you treat the righteous and the unrighteous alike? Now this is going to show you a motivation in prayer here. There's no doubt what he had in mind. Do you know what he had in mind? He had Lot in mind. He had family in mind, see? That's really what happened. So he starts with 50 righteous people. And he goes to 45 in verse 28, to 40 and 29, to 30 in verse 30, to 20 in verse 31, all the way down to 10 in verse 32. God, okay, if there's only 10, why 10? Guess how many people were in Lot's family? 10. Sadly, 
Next week you'll see Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. God said, if I find ten, I won't destroy it. And it shows you that Lot's family was not righteous. Matter of fact, it's very sad that at the very end, the angels are grabbing Lot's hand, uh, his wife's hand, and the two daughters' hands and literally dragging them out of the city. We'll look at that more next week. But anyway, he had Lot's family. See, it was Lot and his wife, and then there were two sons. There were two other daughters that were married, so there's two more husbands, and then two unmarried daughters, and that makes the ten. And 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 this interaction with the Lord, what what would be prayer to us, notice then was about, watch this, it was about the well-being of others. And this motivates me. I don't know if it motivates you. I am motivated by this passage that God, I need to intercede on behalf of others. See, Abraham was being affected by the sin around him and it moved him then to pray and thus this prayer of spiritual warfare. That's what's going on. And you and I need to be moved like that. You know, I wish I could tell you I pray without ceasing for you. I'd be lying. And I could tell you that, but God would know. He'd say, you liar. You don't do that. But I do pray for you. And I want you to know that. I intercede for you at times. And I and I ask the Lord, you know, this battle, because I know the battle we're up against. I'm up against it. And this is a challenge to all of us to be like Abraham, that the sin around us, and not so much the sin, but the way the sin is affecting the people, and we see it not only affecting us, but other loved ones and other friends, it should motivate us to pray, to enter into this arena of spiritual warfare and press back the darkness and ask God to come through. You know, Moses did this. Moses at some point said, Lord, if you will be, if you will re- basically rescue the people, then blot me out. Exodus 32, it says, It came about the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. And Moses returned to the Lord and said, At last, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out of thy book with thou has written. And so what he's saying there is, take me out, Lord, if it means you could forgive their sin. And the same thing we see with Abraham. Moses is motivated. He's crying. You know, the same thing is true in Daniel, you guys. Man, this must be a mark when we are really getting close to God and our spiritual life is where it's supposed to be, I think it's going to be identified that we are people then who are praying for other people. Daniel does the same thing. Daniel was not guilty of sin. You go to the book of Daniel and read his prayers and he says, forgive him. He includes himself there. So Daniel saw the people's sin as his sin. He entered into that and battled for that. The Apostle Paul, Romans 9 I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And what he's saying there was, listen, God, cast me out. Put me aside. If my Jewish brothers and sisters who don't see you as the Messiah could be saved. You guys, this is what we see. Abraham, Moses, Paul, and so many others, they had a passion in their heart for people trapped in sin. And we're we're exhorted there in uh, Ephesians that we're to pray for one another. 
And so this is what was the heart of Abraham as he's praying, you know, because of the warfare. And again, I hope that challenges you. I hope that encourages you. Enter into that arena. Enter in that arena for your own life, your own spiritual life. Enter in that arena for your kids, your wife, your husband. You know, I'm so thankful that I have a godly wife. You don't, you just hear me say it. You don't understand. I understand that I have much of what I have today, spiritually speaking, because of my wife's relationship with the Lord. And I'm so thankful for that, that I have a wife, a believing wife, a praying wife. And you and I need to be that way, don't we? Well, then let's go a couple more, two more. Prayer needs to be encouraging or enduring, I'm sorry. Consistent, constant, and bold. Six times you look at them in your scriptures. The NASB uses the word suppose. Abraham says suppose. You know, suppose there's 50. Suppose there's 40. Suppose. And it's interesting, isn't it? But he's being consistent, isn't he? It speaks of boldness. He's being bold. It's what Paul said to pray without ceasing. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock. In the Greek, in the New Testament, that means keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. And that is exactly what prayer is. And we get a good example of it in Abraham here. You know, he could have just stopped at 50. Okay, okay. No, he couldn't. He had to get it down to 10. See, he it could be at first he thought, well, by now Lot has been, you know, sharing about the Lord. There's got to be more than just his family that love God. Sadly, there weren't. And, and so, again, you know, he was consistent, though. F.B. Meyer, another great man of God of old, says, we cannot, climb the more, we cannot climb the more elevated pinnacles of prayer in a hasty rush. They demand patience, toil, prolonged endeavor, ere the low slopes can be left and the brooding cloud line passed and the aspiring soul can reach the cleft in the mountainside. And I know that's poetic language. I happen to actually like it. But, oh, Lord, I want to climb up higher on the mountain of prayer. You know? I want to leave the the cloud line, that place where it's always cloudy and cold, and I want to rise above it, Lord, and see something I'm not seeing right now. And that's what he says. But it takes patience. It takes toiling. You know? And it happens with a willingness on our part, a discipline, you go. I think there's a balance we need to understand, you guys. You know, we could, we sometimes think that, you know, when I get spirit, so spiritual, then I'll just wake up and I'll wake up in the morning and, and all I want to do is just be with God. But I find that the reality is that I need to discipline myself. And then God will honor my discipline. And it's, so it's not just my discipline. That would just be religion. That'd be just dry and cold if it was, I was just religiously praying and stuff. But as I discipline myself, then I rely upon the Spirit to anoint it to make it alive, and it is, see. But you and I have to discipline ourselves, and that's an important thing. And then lastly, prayer must always flow from a humble heart. Abraham knew who the Lord was, verse 27, and who he was. He said, I'm but dust and ashes. He's saying, I'm nothing, Lord, I'm dirt. I understand the difference. But there's a boldness, there's an honesty in his speaking to God, and yet there's this incredible humbleness I mean, you kind of, you could kind of put yourself in Abraham's shoe as each time he says 40, 30, and you're kind of going, hey, you better stop Abraham before you push him too far. But he keeps going, you know, and, and yet why? Because there's this, there's a genuine humbleness in his heart. That's why God had no problem with it. He was a truly humble guy as he was doing this. And so 
He approaches God. Again, F.B. Meyer says, the nearer we get to God, the more conscious we are of our own unworthiness. And that's really what should be happening. We are to be humble people, and prayer should be making us humble. David prayed in Psalm 51, O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare thy praise. For thou dost not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd bring it. And thou dost not uh, please with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. See, that's what God wants of you and I. God doesn't say, no, don't come to me until your prayer life is perfect. Don't come to me until you've prayed seven days in a row. Come on, I only know you made it three this week, you know, and that third one was questionable. You know, you know, this is not what he does, see. He says, just come with a contrite heart. Come with a broken, dependent heart on him. And so prayer is these things, you guys. It's being alone. It's drawing near. It's seeking understanding and wisdom. It's hard. But it is for the sake of spiritual warfare, for the sake of others. It's got to be enduring. It's got to be consistent, constant, bold. And it needs to flow from a broken and humble heart. To pray, to intercede with the Lord on the behalf of others is an incredible privilege and responsibility, isn't it? It's an incredible privilege that a holy God would even hear our prayers. But because it is a privilege, it's also a responsibility. God is looking for you and I to do that. Christ did it. Think of that. God the Son, the Son of God, prayed. Intercede, often getting alone. And if the Son of God needed to do it, how much more we need to do it. Again, Griffith Thomas said this, Our Christian life will never really be healthy or strong until we make intercession a very prominent and even a predominant feature of our private devotions. And so there's your challenge this morning and for the week. You know, which of us do not want our Christian life to be healthy and strong? Amen? We all do. And the truth is, one of the main ways it's going to happen is prayer. And so, again, if that's what you want, then God has shown you this morning this is what needs to happen. And so, pray, you guys. Pray a little bit more this week than you did last week. And you know what you need to do is, listen, this is very important. I learned this a long time ago. Is If you want to pray tomorrow, you plan today for prayer tomorrow. Do you understand that? Because if you get up in the morning, you might be tired. Who knows what's going to happen first thing in the morning? I, I, you and I don't know what tomorrow will bring. But it's as we think today, okay, Lord, what am I going to do tomorrow to spend this time with you? You'll do it. And then you do it tomorrow, you do the same thing. See, the 12 steps got it right when they say one day at a time, but I think they actually stole that from God. Okay? Because really that's what the, our Christian life is to be. It's today. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and this will be added to you. And so, as we consider tomorrow, and we've been challenged and exhorted and encouraged to pray, it's exciting as we think of, wow, this is powerful stuff, Lord. Now's the time to pray in for tomorrow. And then tomorrow, you plan for Tuesday. Don't worry about Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Don't go there. Just worry about tomorrow. And then when Monday's here, you get ready for the next day. Amen? And I can handle that. Can you handle that? I can do that. Okay, let's stand. Enough is enough.